Welcome to Rightly Divided. This is episode number one, and I'm Doug Francis. Today we're going to cover Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I had initially intended to cover the entire chapter in one episode, and I actually recorded it a couple of times, but what I realized is it's just too much to cover. So I want to break it up over a few episodes and go into a little more depth, and that way I think we will all come away with a better understanding of what Romans 9 really teaches. If you will, it will be more rightly divided. So with that being said, welcome to this episode. Let's begin. So let's jump into Romans chapter 9. Before we do, though, I want to begin with just a brief word of prayer. We always need the Lord's help in understanding His Word. When we handle it, we don't want to handle it deceitfully. We want to take good care that what we say, how we understand it, is in accordance with God's perspective and God's truth. So let's have a word of prayer to ask him to help us do that today. Lord, we come before you and we are so thankful that we have your word. Thank you for the book of Romans written by Paul. I pray that you would allow us today to understand what we see here in chapter 9, what it is that you were teaching through your apostle, and what you want us to know that our lives would be changed. I pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you would give us your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you for praying with me. Romans falls as the first letter to a church in the New Testament. Uh, that is, positionally, it's the first letter to a church. It comes right after Acts, and Acts is the last book of the historical narrative in the New Testament. So Romans is the first church letter, and it breaks down into several segments. In chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 3, Paul gives the problem of sin in humanity. And he distinguishes that, or I guess really he removes any distinguishing factors as sinners from the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all sinners. Whether you're born a Jew or born a Gentile, you're sinful. And he makes that case very clearly. The law is not going to help the Jew uh, be righteous, and, and Gentiles are not righteous either. Then he gets in in the last half of chapter 3 through chapter 4 into how it is that we're saved by faith, and he makes that very plain. Then in chapters 5 through 8, he talks about the new believers standing, now that they are no longer condemned under works, what is their standing before God in relationship to sin and in relationship to God's judgment. Then in chapter 9, he starts a new section. And in this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with what all of this means for Israel as a nation. And he is talking nationally. There are people who would argue that he's not talking nationally. He's talking about individuals uh, in a general sense. But that simply isn't true. And we'll look at why that's not true. He's dealing with Israel as a nation, and he makes a really excellent 
case for what God is doing with them right now and really reveals something to us that we would not otherwise know. And a lot of people throughout history have missed, I guess, the teaching of these three chapters because they have treated the Jews terribly. People who otherwise profess the name of Christ have mistreated the Jews, and I think if they had read more carefully Romans 9, 10, 11, they wouldn't have done that. Then after chapter 11, beginning in chapter 12, and going through chapter 15, Paul deals with issues of Christian behavior and relationships amongst each other and in the church. And then chapter 16 wraps up the book with uh, some general salutations to all kinds of people, and then a couple of uh, instructions that he wants the Romans to carry out. And that's that's the book of Romans. It's, it's very straightforward. It very clearly breaks down into those sections, and it's not... It's not um, very convoluted, I guess you could say, in its layout. It's very obvious. So Romans 9, then, where we're going to be looking today, begins this section of what the teaching of the gospel means for Israel as a nation. And so that's where we'll pick up. We're going to read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 first. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so check out verses 1 and 2 again. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Why is Paul making such an emphasis on the fact that what he's about to say is not a lie? Well, it's because what he's about to say is very drastic, very dramatic. He says in verse 3, I wish that I were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul is saying... If I could take my salvation and give it to Israel, if I could undo their rejection of Christ and I go to hell for it instead, that's what I would do. That's, that's an unbelievable love for people. And that is the heart of the Apostle Paul. He is obsessed with the gospel, with evangelizing, with spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And as he should be, because Jesus interrupted his life quite dramatically, and called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But his heart is still also for the Jewish people, which reflects the heart of Christ. Jesus loved the Jews. He came to be their Messiah, but they rejected him. So Paul, having said that he could wish himself accursed of Christ for his brethren, then points out the benefits that the Israelites had. They had the benefit of, of uh, he says, having the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, whose are the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever, amen. They had every benefit that they could have had, and yet they rejected Christ, and Paul's heart was broken for it. He goes on in verses 6 and 7, 
and says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. And that simply means that despite the fact that Israel as a nation, and we do know that he's talking about them as a nation. I wanted to point that out. In verse 4, he says, who are Israelites? He's talking about them as Israel, as a nation. And then again, he's going to reiterate that here in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So he's dealing with people in as groups of people, as what manner of people they are. And he has said here in verse 6 that it's not as though the word of God has taken none effect. Meaning that as he laments that Israel is lost, he understands that some people in Israel have been saved. Some of them have accepted Christ, but not all of them. And they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you Israel in God's eyes. So he goes on in verse 7 and says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is to say that Abraham had more than one child. In fact, he had Ishmael before he had Isaac. But God chose that Abraham's children would be called Abraham's children through Isaac, which means that Isaac was the chosen heir. He was the one through whom the official lineage of Abraham would be recorded. And we still see issues with that in today's world, the, the fight, if you will, between Ishmael and Isaac. Nevertheless, God's promised seed was Isaac. He continues in verse 8 and says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Ishmael was the child of Abraham's flesh. His birth came about through Abraham and Sarah's conniving to fulfill the promise of God in their lives. But you can't, we can't, Abraham can't fulfill God's promise in his life. God has to fulfill the promises that he makes. And so the child of his flesh, Ishmael, was not the child of God, meaning the child that God had promised. In the same way, the children of the flesh, those who are trying to obtain salvation by works through their own flesh, those are not the children of God. The children of God are those who come to God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And there are some Israelites who have done that. But as a nation, specifically through the representation of the leadership, Jesus Christ had been rejected and has and is being rejected. He continues in the second half of verse 8 and says, But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And we could go to Galatians, I won't for sake of time, but we could go to Galatians and see how ultimately the promised seed was not Isaac, but was Christ. Jesus Christ was the seed of promise that would come through Abraham, the, the promised Messiah, the one through whom the world would have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Verse 9 says, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So when God had told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, he had also told him, it's going to be through your wife, Sarah, not through Hagar. Sarah shall have a son. Verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, I'm going to skip verse 11 and read verse 12, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. 
So when Rebecca had conceived, she was told by God, your older child is going to serve your younger child. Now, I skipped verse 11, but we're going to come back to it. Before we look at that verse, though, I want to go over to Genesis chapter 25. That's where we see the story of Rebecca's pregnancy and where God tells her that the elder will serve the younger. And this is an important exercise to do and an important note to make. When we're studying the Bible, if you come to a story or an analogy or uh, any other kind of, of reference to something else, it is of it is absolutely the best practice you can have to go find and study and look at that thing that has been used as a picture. Because in doing so, we're going to be able to get the context and we're going to have the same frame of reference that the author of the Bible had when he used that. So when Paul references Rebecca and her children here in Romans chapter 9, if we go back and we read the story that Paul's referencing, we're going to be on the same page as Paul. So that's what we want to do. Genesis chapter 25, verse, verses. Uh, we'll start in verse 22 and just read verse 22 and 23. And the children struggled together within her. That's Jacob and Esau struggling within Rebekah. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. She had been barren, but Isaac had prayed that he would, or that she rather, would get pregnant. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebecca conceived. But then the children are struggling inside of her, and they must have been really going at it because she is just in turmoil, wondering, why in the world did I get pregnant if it's just going to be like this? And so she goes and she asks the Lord, Lord, what's going on? Verse 23, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. Look at that word again. Did he say two babies are in your womb? No. He said two nations are in your womb. And two manner of people, two different types of, of people, people being plural, shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So when we read here in Romans 9, when Paul references this story and says... The elder shall serve the younger. We go back and we look at that story and we discover, oh, when Rebecca talked to God, when she prayed to the Lord, the Lord told her two nations are in your womb. So the context of the reference here of the story that Paul is using is speaking of nations, not speaking of Jacob and Esau as individuals and what they would do as it pertains to accepting or rejecting God's salvation for themselves, but that they as nations would develop in a certain way and that the elder would serve the younger. That is, that Esau would serve Jacob. Now, Esau became the nation of Edom, and Jacob became the nation of Israel. In fact, Jacob's name for himself, God changed to Israel, which means the prince of God. So the elder shall serve the younger. Now let's look back at Romans 9.11. It says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. The elder shall serve the younger, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, 
not of works. So what type of election is, is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about the election of salvation? Or is he talking about the election of Jacob as the one through whom the promises of God would be fulfilled upon Israel? Well, he's talking about Jacob as the one through whom the promises of God would be fulfilled upon Israel. He's not talking about the election of Jacob as one who would be saved and Esau as one who would not be saved. But he does say election might stand, and then he contrasts it to works. Election, not of works. God's choosing, not your works. So what has God chosen is the question. Let's go look at Romans 11 and verses 5 and 6. Now, Romans 11 is the last chapter in the section of the letter in which Paul is dealing with Israel as a nation and what's going on with them in light of the rejection of Christ and salvation by faith in Him. And he says, we'll start in verse 4, But what saith the answer of God unto him? You know what? That's, let's just start in verse 1. It'll give us more context. I say then, has God cast away his people? Has God cast away Israel? Good question. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, what ye not means don't you know? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek, they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Okay, so Paul's referencing the story of Elijah, and we won't go look at it for sake of time, but where Elijah goes and he hides in the cave, he's hiding from Jezebel, and and the Lord comes and he says, what are you doing in a cave, Elijah? And Elijah says, look, they've, they've done all these things, they've rejected you, they've digged down your altars, I'm left alone, I'm the only one left alone who still serves you. I'm the only one following you in all of Israel. And now they're trying to kill me. And if they kill me, the, the implication is, if they kill me, no one will be left to serve you. God, you'll be left without anyone in the world to serve you. And God's answer to Elijah is, I've reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you don't know what you're talking about. I've got a remnant of people here, 7,000 people in Israel who are not worshiping Baal, but are faithful to me. In other words, if you die, it doesn't stop there. I'm not depending on you alone. Praise the Lord, He doesn't depend on us alone as individual people, because that is a weight that we cannot bear. God has everything in hand. He is going to accomplish His will, whether or not we're around to see it through ourselves. Verse 5 of Romans 11 then says, Even so at this present time, so this is Paul talking again, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Just like there was a remnant in Elijah's time, there's a remnant now, according to the election of grace. Now, that phrase is very important, election of grace, because it tells us what type of election God uses. It's an election of grace. God has elected to use grace to save people. And there are some Israelites who have accepted his way of doing things. And they have come to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Just like Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Israel was steeped in this system of legalism because of the Mosaic Law. 
And they missed the point that the law was supposed to point them to God and highlight in their own minds and their lives the real the reality that they couldn't work for salvation, but they missed that point and they got hung up on legalism. But some of them realized, boy, we can't do this. We need God's grace if we're going to be saved. And you could go to Acts chapter 15 and find where the apostle Peter uh, says that. He says, he says that the law was a burden, was a yoke that, that neither their fathers nor they were able to bear. So they realized the weight of the burden of the law. Verse 6 here in Romans 11 then says, And if by grace, if election is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Ah. So what we're talking about here is that God has chosen that grace is the way that he's going to save people. He's decided salvation is going to be a gift. It's not going to be by your works. So let's think about this for a moment. If someone decides that they are going to give someone else a gift, and they offer that gift to that person, and that person responds with, oh, let me pay you for that. The gift giver cannot accept payment. Otherwise, the gift is not a gift. It's been purchased. It's been earned. And we see that actually in Romans chapter 4. I'll read that for you quickly. In Romans chapter 4 and verse... Four, it says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you work for salvation, God just owes it to you. It's not a gift anymore. It's not by grace. But God has chosen that it would be by grace. Therefore, he has to reject our works. Because if he were to accept our works as payment, then it would be a debt. And guess what? God doesn't owe us anything. And we can't pay a debt that is equal to the burden of sin that we carry, the violation of an infinite God. We cannot pay for that. It would take eternity. That's why if you die in your sins, you will be separated from God and you will go to hell eternally because it takes an eternal amount of payment for a violation against an infinite God. So when we speak of election, going back to Romans chapter 9, it's in contrast to works, and it's the election of grace. Jacob had done nothing to earn being the heir. He was born second. He had no legal right to be the heir. He had not worked for it. He had not been able to uh, earn it by his own merit. In fact, he was a scoundrel. He was a weasel of a guy for the first portion of his life. He was a guy that, that you would have just said, man, I don't want to hang out with that dude. He is so annoying. He's disrespectful. He's self-serving. I don't want to be around him. Nevertheless, not because of his works, but because of God's grace, God said, I'm going to show favor to you. And so it is that we come to Romans 9, 12, where it says, It was said unto her, Rebecca, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Okay, what are we talking about there? Again, are we talking about God loved Jacob as an individual and he hated Esau as an individual? So Jacob was able to be saved, but Esau wasn't? No, that's not what the Bible is teaching here. 
And we know that, again, because we're going to go back to the reference that Paul is using. When he says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau has I, have I hated, he also says, as it is written. So this is written somewhere in the Old Testament. Where? Well, it's in Malachi chapter 1. In Malachi chapter 1, we read in verse 1, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Here's God's answer. God, God says to Israel, I've loved you. Israel says to God, How have you loved us? God answers, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob? And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, remember Edom is the nation that came out of Esau. And he's talking about Esau and Edom synonymously here. So he's speaking of them as a nation. Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So God had hated Esau as Edom, as a nation. And if you go to Obadiah, you see that Edom was full of pride. I hadn't intended to go there, but, but for the sake of thoroughness, let's go ahead and do that. All right, now it says over here in Obadiah a few things that will point us to what it was about Edom that God despised or hated. Look at Obadiah verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Edom was a proud people, and God despises pride. In fact, the Bible says that God resists the proud. And so we see that here, that God resists. He sets himself against Edom. He hates them because of their pride. In addition to their pride, verse 10 says, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. So Edom, Esau, had become a nation, a people, a manner of people, who hated and persecuted Israel their brethren, and who are proud. And God says, I will wipe you off the face of the map. You're going to be cut off forever. The pride of your heart, the violence against your brother Jacob, has made it such that I'm not going to bless you. I will not bless you. So the issue then with Esau was that Edom was going to be a people who were evil, who were proud kind of people that God cannot and will not bless. And so it was said to Rebekah, the elder shall serve the younger. God knew that this was going to take place. And God, in order to show his grace unto Jacob, unto Israel, chose to let Jacob be the heir and for Edom to serve Israel. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So is God dealing here with Esau and Jacob as individuals? No, he is not. He is, he is dealing with Esau and Jacob as the nations that they will become. In the context of Romans chapter 9, Paul is dealing with Israel as a nation. And he's pointing out how it is that some of them have rejected Christ, have rejected God's way of salva salvation by grace through faith, 
and are going about under their own power trying to attain God's righteousness through the works of the law. So the first point that he makes here in verses 1 through 13 is, just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you a child of God. You've got to be born in the right line. What is the right line of people to be born in if you want to be a child of God? Well, it isn't a physical lineage. It isn't a physical pedigree. The line that you have to be born in to be a child of God is you have to be born again in the Spirit through salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to be born again. Jesus offers salvation to whomsoever will. He offers salvation to all those who are thirsty, to all those who realize they are sinful and wish to turn from their sins and be reconciled unto God. And he makes it very clear throughout the scriptures that that's his desire. To keep us in the context of Romans, I'll read these last passages and leave us on this note. In Romans chapter 10, verse 12 says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Unto how many that call upon him? All that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God wants to save everybody. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what do you need to do? If you're not saved, if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins before God, He is not willing that you should perish. He is merciful to all. He is rich unto all that call unto Him. Call upon the name of Jesus. Put your belief in Him, and He'll save you. It's a free gift. You can't work for it. He won't let you work for it. But you can accept it, and He'll give it to you immediately. Thank you for joining me today as we rightly divided the first 13 verses of Romans 9. I really am praying that God will use this teaching to strengthen your faith and help you to grow in Him. If you have any questions or comments regarding today's episode, you can write me at rightlydividedpodcast at gmail.com. If you were edified by what you heard, please keep me in your prayers. The truthful preaching of God's Word is under heavy and constant attack, and your prayer is invaluable. Thank you. Also, don't forget 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That wraps it up for today. Next time we will cover the next section in Romans chapter 9. But until then, may God's grace and peace be with you.